All right, so I've already mentioned briefly our Advent, Advent wreath this morning. Um, they've, Advent wreaths have been around for about 200 years. That's about how long the church in general has had Advent wreaths going and lighting candles and so on. Um, but obviously the tradition of celebrating Advent and celebrating Christmas goes a lot further back than just a couple of hundred years. But Advent wreaths have, have kind of changed over the years, different designs depending on what church tradition you're part of. So I found this, uh, that, that, that in contemporary Western Christianity, part of what we're at, a typical Advent wreath has four candles inside an evergreen wreath. Well, there they are. Uh, some churches add a fifth candle. We're apparently some churches. The, then this was kind of weird. Um, each, well, we, we know this, each candle represents a different thing. Each candle is lit on a Sunday going back four weeks before Christmas itself. The first candle is apparently meant to be purple. I don't know if you can see our purple candle this morning. But pretend, yeah, it's very purple. Uh, the first candle, purple candle, the prophet's candle, as I said, stands for hope. The second candle is purple. I'm like, why did they need to say this? I don't know. The second candle is apparently purple, but the first one is purple. I, I, I don't understand all of this. The second candle is the Bethlehem candle. It stands for peace. The third candle is rose-colored, and it is the shepherd's candle, stands for joy, and then the fourth candle is also purple. I'm not sure why they just didn't have four different color candles. I, I don't understand. The fourth candle is the angel's candle, and it is the candle of love. Of course, I also read this week that the third candle is love. Well, the second candle is love, and quite frankly, it just sounds as if somebody made this all up. Which is, in fact, actually what they did. Um, uh, but it's handy that at least some tradition recognizes the fourth candle being the candle of love because we want to talk about love today. We're in our fourth week of the Advent Conspiracy. And some of you remember, I invited you to join a conspiracy with us. There are all sorts of conspiracies in the world around us. I think some of our favorite ones of the last couple of weeks has been that John F. Kennedy is not actually dead. John F. Kennedy is actually Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones. Um, I think that is just a fantastic conspiracy theory. I'd buy into that one. Uh, one of the other popular ones that we've got into recently as well is the idea that there is no such thing as a bird. That birds are in fact drones created by the government in the 1990s to spy on us. That prior to 1990 there were no birds. Um, your parents are lying to you. And would you believe that there are a number of people of, our, well, not our generation, I'm old enough to know better, of a younger generation who actually believe that. Um, so, so I'm not going to invite you into that kind of conspiracy, but a different kind of conspiracy. Uh, because the, 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 the narrative of Christmas for the last hundred years or so has been, it's all about consumerism. It's all about what you can buy. It's all about what you can get. It's all about bigger and better and more presents and bigger piles of things under the trees and spend more and, and max out your credit card and just overindulge. Make sure that on Christmas morning you eat so much that somebody has to roll you into bed. Um, and so, so that's, that's kind of how Christmas goes, right? That on Christmas Day you have t roast turkey, on Boxing Day you have cold turkey, on, 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 on the day after Boxing Day you have turkey sandwiches, and then you're having turkey stew, and then you know a week later you're still having turkey soup because you've just got so much. 
And so the narrative of Christmas over the last few years has been, you've got to buy more, you've got to have more, you've got to invest more. It's all about what you can get and, and buying the most expensive gifts possible is what proves that you love someone. If that's the case, I'm not very well loved in my home. Um, and so the conspiracy theory that we want to put out there is let's push against this. Let's push back against that narrative. Let's go against the norm. Let's buck the system. Because we few people here can bring down uh, what the consumerism. Just us, right? We can bring down Western society. And so the idea is spend less this Christmas. You don't need to max out your credit card. Why, why on earth do we do that? So instead of spending vast amounts of money on stupid things that will get broken and thrown away in a week, spend less. Buy smaller gifts. Gifts that are perhaps more meaningful. And give more. That's the interesting thing, right? Spend less, but give more. And like, how on earth are we meant to give more for spending less? Give more of your time. Give more of your presence instead of presence. And give to something that actually will last and have value. Remember I told you last week, don't give your kids a present. Give them money, but make sure that that money is addressed to a cause that they're actually interested in. So your kids keep banging on about the environment and straws up turtles' noses and whatever. Then, then give them money to go and be part of the reef cleanup that happens once a month down at Vecchi's Pier. And make that their Christmas gift. Buy them goggles and flippers and say, go clean. Um, no, it's <laughs> not happening. Come on, Jordan. You don't need another PlayStation, Jordan. I'm telling you. Um, but think about giving to something that adds value to our world and not just a pile of stuff under the Christmas tree that gets broken. So it's been about, we started with worship properly. Worship what should be worshipped. Worship Jesus. And then spend less because where is your treasure? What are the things that are really treasured? Where's real value? And let's invest in the things that are real value. World peace and the environment and I don't know, whatever else we said. Ending world hunger. I even said you guys weren't sure, but I even said last week, give if you want to end world hunger, and give money to Dan and Kerry so they can buy seedlings for farming God's way, right? We can end world hunger. Well, we may not end world hunger, but we can end a little bit of it. Right? So, so spend less, give more. And this morning, this morning, our theme is love all. Love all. Christmas is a season of joy and hope and peace, but it's also the season of love. And I think one thing that, that, that the, the, the baby in the manger should surely remind us of is that God's love was somewhat indiscriminate. That he didn't just love, he doesn't just love nice people like me, but he likes not so nice people like the person that you're sitting next to. I don't know. <laughs> okay, enough of myself, goodness me. Um, so here's, here's an old hymn that kind of captures our theme for this morning, right? Love came down at Christmas. Love all lovely, love divine. Love was born at Christmas, stars and angels gave the sign. Worship we the Godhead, love incarnate, love divine. Worship we our Jesus, but wherewith our sacred sign. Love shall be our token. Love be yours, love be mine. Love to God, love to others. 
love for plea and gift and sign. And that really sums up what we want to talk about this morning. Divine love that has come to us. And this will be our sign, our token, that we have embraced and found this love. That we shall love God and we shall love others. Even the unlovely. So, if you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me this morning to 1 John. It's right at the end. It's one of the last things that John wrote. Right at the end of your Bibles. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, um, from verse 7, where John says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So we're really this morning just going to kind of follow a bit of the grammar of what's gone on in this passage this morning. And, and one of the guys that I, I read and just preparing for the Sunday said, it starts with a command and that we don't need to say much about the command. The command is to love and we know that we're commanded to love one another. Um, and, and, you know, you kind of got to ask the question, who is each other? Then when he says love each other, who are, who are the each others? And it's, well, it, it's the person next to you. Have a look. It's the person in front of you. It's the person behind you. I don't know if you want to look there. No. <laughs> Sorry, Daniel. You're stuck. You're going to love Kevin. Um, uh, you know, love each other. And it's, it's, it's not just the person across the room, but it's the person down the street, and it's the person around the corner, and it's the person at the taxi rank, and it's the person that cut in front of you in the queue in the shops yesterday. It's the person that took your parking space when your indicator was on at the mall. Those are the people that we're meant to love. That's the everyone. Except here's the thing. I mean, it, it is that. We are meant to love everyone. But here's the thing. I don't know that it's a command here. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's very clear that there is a command you have to love. But I think what John does here is interesting. It's an invitation. Where he says, come, let us love one another. It's not that you have to love. I mean, you do. You better. But it's not so much the command here as the invitation. The invitation to love one another. It's like John saying, join me. In loving each other. And what's, what's even better, if you have the King James Version, in fact, some of you memorized this passage in the 1940s um, in the old King James Version. And, and some of you who know this, how does it actually start in the old version? Beloved, let us love. Isn't that cool? I mean, beloved is so much better than dear friends. I, I, I just think it's cool, right? Those who are loved, let us love. Those who are loved by God, let us love. Those who are amongst the ones who are loved, 
Come, let me invite you to love one another. You who have experienced love from God, join this invitation and love. Start with your spouse. Oh boy. <laughs> right, that's hard, right? Love your husband. Love your wife. Is your wife just a glorified housemaid with access to your bed? Is she there to just clean up and pick up and cook and run after the kids while you lay about on the couch? <laughs> there are some very nervous laughters going on here at the moment. I'm like, I'm, should I be worried? <laughs> if you're loved by God, is there not, does it not say something about how you love your wife and how you treat her? Wives, love your husbands. Is your husband the butt of every joke? Yeah, but I mean, look, Debbie, I understand. I totally, I mean, that's, that's fine. It's the rest of us, though. Um, I mean, Bernice was saying to me this week that she was, she was up at trick marking, and in the group of people that she's marking with, all the ladies, and she just said the way they talked about their husbands in public amongst strangers was actually quite frightening. And if they're talking like this about their husbands in a public space amongst strangers, what do they say amongst their friends? And what do they say when they're alone? And is that really how we're meant to love one another? Oh dear. <laughs> It's gone. When you remember, tell me. <laughs> but of course, it's not just husbands and wives. I mean, it's, it's children and how do children treat their parents. And it's parents and how do they treat their children. And it's, it, it's us within the church and how we respond and react to one another. I, I, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. That sounds impressive, right? It says this, Love, whether used of God or man, is an earnest and anxious desire for an active and a beneficent interest in the well-being of the one loved. So love defined is an earnest and anxious desire for an active and beneficent interest in the well-being of others. Now, wives, if you love someone called Ernest, that's a problem. Um, unless you're married to him, yeah. Uh, should love be frank and earnest? Well, only one. Pick one. Um, but love is meant to be earnest and anxious. Now, and again, I know that some of you in your home are very anxious. Um, but is there, a, is, is there that earnest love that seeks the active and beneficent interest of the other? Would that define how we respond to each other here? Does that define your response to the guy who took your parking yesterday? Did you go, oh, you know what? They needed it more than me. I, I, I need the exercise. I'll park over there and walk. Is that what you thought? Yeah. 
this year we've had we've had this lovely little picture of the four things that the church is meant to love, right? We've had this whole love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength in worship. We've had the love one another as Jesus says, as I have loved you. We've had love your neighbor as you love yourselves and love the world because God so loved the world. And if love is this anxious and earnest desire for the active beneficence of others, does that fit into all of those categories for you? Do we love our neighbor? And remember who the neighbor is. It's the outsider, the one that doesn't fit in, the one that's different, the one that's despised, the one that we don't like. And I suspect that there are lots of us who will say, we, we have to say this, that there are times when we simply can't love like we should. We simply don't love. We don't obey this command. We, we neglect the uh, invitation. And, and this, this kind of anxious and earnest love does not define how we deal with our spouse, our family, our friends, our church neighbors, our, our, well, our church members. It certainly doesn't define how we deal with those who are not of the Christian faith. Does this anxious and earnest love define how we respond towards Muslims and atheists and Satanists? And politicians, and yeah, and Ronaldo. Sorry for the Portuguese people here this morning. Um, but it's an invitation, isn't it, to in, to love all, to love all. And at Christmas time, we as as the church should, in particular, be characterised as a people of love and yet so often christmas becomes the time when we love ourselves more than anyone else and indulge in what we want and perhaps buy the super fancy stuff trying to buy the love of those around us if i buy my kid this toy surely they'll love me more and all those young people here this morning are nodding their heads vigorously saying yes mom that is true i will promise but why? Why should we love? What reason does John give for this invitation, for saying, why don't you come and love? Why should we love others? Why should I not just love myself a little bit this holiday? After all, I deserve it. I've earned it. And John says, here's why we should love one another. He says, because love comes from God. He says, let us love one another because love comes from God. We're meant to love because of where love comes from. And John makes it a little clear later on when he says love comes from God because God is love. So just to be clear, love comes from God not in the same way that a letter comes from the postman. Some of you don't even know what a postman is anymore because we don't have them anymore. But, you know, it's not as though God is delivering something. Love comes from God in the same way that light comes from the sun. It is the essence and nature of the sun to be light. The sun would not be the sun if it didn't produce light. If it didn't produce, you know what I mean, right? So light comes from the sun because the sun is the source of light. Heat comes from fire because that's what fire is. Fire without heat is not a fire. So in the same way that heat comes from fire and light comes from the sun, love comes from God. 
Because it is who He is. He is the source of love. So John says, let us love one another because God is the source of love and love comes from Him. And then he says this. He adds a little bit here. He says, first of all, love is the evidence of the new birth. He says, everyone born of God loves. Right, so to be clear, being loving is not the basis of our salvation. Being loving is not what makes God go, oh, ignore that. Being loving is not what makes God go, oh, you're a nice person. I think I'll take you into my kingdom. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. We are not, we're not welcomed into his kingdom because we're loving people. We're not brought into his kingdom because we're nice, kind people. He brings us into his kingdom. He gives us the new birth. And the result of that is that we become more loving. Or we should. That's what John says. He says, love is meant to be the sign that you have met Jesus. It's like parents pass on stuff to their kids, right? We're going to pass on our genes to our kids. I'm going to pass on these genes one day to Cullen. He's looking forward to it. We pass on our DNA to our children, to the next generation. And so, I mean, you have blue eyes and curly hair because that's what your parents have passed down to you. In, in the same way, there is a sense in which some of God's DNA should be passed on to us as his children. And if the very essence of who God is, is love, then that love should find its place in us. Why do we obey this command? Why do we enter into this invitation? Because if you're born again, it's who you are. And more than that, John then says, love shows that you know God. If you love then it demonstrates that you know who God is. And again, there is a difference between knowing God and knowing about God, right? It's like, I know about my wife. I could tell you her height. I could tell you her weight, but I won't. No, she's shaking her head. She's like, no, uh, definitely not. Um, I could tell you her shoe size. I could maybe even tell you her eye color. Now I'm in trouble. But knowing, uh, knowing those things about her does not necessarily mean that I actually know her. And so it is with God, right? There are a lot of people who know a lot of stuff about God who can tell you all sorts of things about Him. Who could tell you that He's loving, and who could tell you that He's nice, and they tell you that He's full of grace. Tell you that He looks like some Norwegian hippie of the 1970s with long flowing hair and blue eyes. And a... the, the, the people will say, oh, we know about God. But we demonstrate that we actually know who he is when we love one another. And John even reverses it to make the point. He says, those that don't love, don't know God. And that feels kind of harsh because, to be honest, there are times when I don't love as I should. There are times when I don't love you as I should. There are times when I don't love my wife as I should. There are times when I don't love my neighbor as I should. And you know what I reveal in those moments? In those moments, I reveal that I have forgotten who God is. 
And I may still be able to rattle off all sorts of systematic theology and list points about whatever, but I've revealed in those moments that I've forgotten who God is. And I've lost track of Him. My knowledge and sense of God and who He is has gotten lost. And it's no good claiming to know God and pitching up at church on Sunday and singing songs with your eyes closed and claiming to know God and yet not being able to love your spouse, your neighbor, your church member, the different and the despised. But what is love really? John gives us an example of love, right? So he tells us there's an invitation to love. He says, here's why you should love. And then he says, let me give you an example of what love looks like. Here's, here's some great definitions. A, a group of professionals posted the following questions to a group of four to eight-year-olds and asked the question, what does love mean? And uh, here are some of their answers. I think these are fantastic answers of defining what love is. <laughs> love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your French fries without making them give you any of theirs. <laughs> Absolutely true. Love is what makes you smile when you're tired. Love is when mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. Some of you make coffee for daddy and then spit in it before you give it to him. That's, that's not love. Let's just say, that's not love. love. Try this next week. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. How cool is that? Five-year-old said that. Noel, age seven, says this. Love is when you tell a guy that you like his shirt and then he wears it every day. Ew. <laughs> uh, Chris, I like your shirt. <laughs> Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him alone all day. Can I just say that's gross? Puppies should not be allowed to lick faces. That's just nasty. I don't know. Um, Ah, I love this one. When you love someone, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. Yes. <laughs> you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. People forget. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time. Even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Very sweet. Here's what John says about what is the perfect example of love. This is how God showed his love, he says. This is how God showed his love. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is the example of what love looks like. God sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Four things about God's supreme example of love in this passage. Number one, it is self-giving. God sent his son. Last week we, we spoke about how God gave 
His Son. Love is displayed not in feelings and in emotion, but love is shown in action in giving. Selfless giving. Giving of self. Secondly, God's love is selfless. So, firstly, God's love is self-giving. It's a giving of Himself. Secondly, it is selfless. He gave His one and only Son. The one thing above all things that God loved is what He gave. God sent His beloved Son. God's love was selfless and sacrificial. It was not selfish and self-gaining as so much of our gift-giving is. I'm giving you stuff in order to bribe you to love me more. God's love is selfless. Thirdly, God's love is very pointed. It's very directed. And I know it says God loved the world. And again, we have that, isn't it amazing? God loves everyone. But remember what we said last week, that the amazing fact about God so loved the world is not the extent of his love, but the depth of his love. The amazing thing about God so loved the world is not the, the, the fact that God loves everyone, but that God would love anyone. Because when John uses the word world, he means that fallen, sinful, rebellious, um, broken, humanity that shakes their fist against him and it's not amazing that god loves everyone it's amazing that god loves those people that god loves those ones who who resist him who shake their fist against him who give him the finger that's who god loves god loves what's broken god loves the undeserving and then finally, God's love is purposeful, that we might live through him. His love has an aim, and that aim is life, because love does that. And you know this, what kills a marriage? Take out the love, extinguish the love, turn on indifference. That'll kill it, right? Want to kill a church? Replace love with laws and rituals and religiousness. But love, real love, is life giving. You want to turn the lights on again in the dark church? <laughs> Learn to love again. This same guy, John, a couple of years later, writes the book of Revelation. And at the beginning of that, he writes a little postcard to the church at Ephesus and says, you're a great church. You do all sorts of wonderful things. You feed the poor and you, I don't know, you clothe the naked and you're visiting people in prison. You're doing wonderful things, but you're doing all of that stuff and there's no love in your church. And he says, you know what? Your church is dark and dank and nasty. Oh, you're doing lots of things. Oh, you're singing songs on Sunday. You, you apparently have power, but you don't have the Spirit's power because there is no love. And he says, if you don't fix that, the church will shut down. You want to turn the lights back on? Love one another. And so the question then is, does our love for one another, does our love for the neighbor, does our love for the outsider look like this? Selfless, self-giving, purposeful, directed? Are we specifically seeking to love even those who don't love us in return? Very quickly, what is the standard of love? What makes love, love? And for those of a certain age, you may remember that foreigner asked this question. Remember? I want to know what love is. Remember that? Yeah. Um, 
and love brings light. Maybe I should sing more often, right? Um, and John says this. He says, listen, the standard of love is not your love, but God's love. That's the standard that we aim for. That's the standard that we're looking to reach. Your love is not the standard. Our love is not the benchmark. Love can't be defined by you. And you know why? Because your love is fickle. Your love vanishes like the mist once the smoke of the burnt toast, you know, dissipates. Thank goodness our love is not the standard. I mean, if, if it was, it would be handy because then the standard for love would be a lot lower than it currently is. And we could all match it. But love is not based on what you have thought or felt or done or said. God's love is the standard. God sets the standard for what real love looks like. God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. And again, if you've got an old Bible, it would say God sent his son as a propitiation. It is a fancy word that means a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath. Right? Because God loves the world in its nastiness, in its evil, in its sin, in its rebellion. And yet God must do something about the evil and sin and rebellion. And so what does he do? He sends his son into the world. God selflessly, sacrificially gives his son to the despised in order that they might have life. And justice falls on him and on me. And John says, that's the standard of love. That's the measure. And a couple of verses later, he says, um, we love him because he first loved us. Because his love is a standard, not ours. And so two quotes, Tim Keller says, the gospel is that Jesus lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that you should have died in your place so that God receives you not for your record and your sake, but for his record and his sake. John Stott says this, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. But God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. That is the standard of love. Then there's a rationale for love. John gets somewhat logical. God's, John says, God did this for you. If God did this for you, then you ought if God has done this, then you ought to love others. Ought. What a word. Not ought as in you have to, you must, you'd better, but ought in the same way that in the same way that birds fly, or that birds ought to fly, in the same way that fish ought to swim, in the same way that, that geckos ought to poop, because it's what they do, right? It's in their nature. This is what you ought to be. If you've been changed by him, if you are aware of his love, then you ought to live in this way. When you see a bird walking around, we say there must be something wrong with that bird. Unless it's an ostrich, or a penguin, or an emu, I, I don't know, whatever else, right? But in general, we would say there is something wrong with this bird 
and it needs to be fixed. And when we see a Christian who is not loving, we have to go, there is something wrong with this. Something ought to be fixed. It's not that they're not a Christian. It's that clearly something is wrong here. Because you, if you have been loved by God, if you are beloved by Him, then you ought to love. Like birds ought to fly and fish ought to swim. It's who we are. It's our nature as the children of God. And the result of this is, if we love, is that God lives in us. When we love, we experience the life of God. In some church circles, the idea is that we experience God through candles, or, or we experience God through loud music and big song and, and moving of emotion. John says we experience the life of God when we love others. When we display love for the unlovely. In fact, he, he says this. He says, God's love is made complete in you when you love. I'm currently doing a 2,000 piece jigsaw puzzle at home. It's taken me a long time. It's looking good. But it's not complete. And in fact, I suspect there's a piece or two missing because it came from SPCA. And I'm pretty sure there's one piece right in the middle. I've looked for that piece. It's very distinct, and it's not in the box. But right, when that picture is complete, when that puzzle is complete, the picture will appear. And the picture will only appear when it's complete. In some ways, you are a puzzle. Some of you are more puzzling than others, but you are a puzzle. And the picture will only appear... The, the, the full, complete image of God in you will appear when you love as Christ does. That is what John says makes God's love complete in you. Sometimes you might be going, I don't feel like I'm loved by God. I don't feel like there's something incomplete here. Well, perhaps part of the reason is that there isn't, there's a missing puzzle piece, and the missing puzzle piece is that there's someone you need to love. Because John says this is how we experience life in God, and this is how God's love is made complete in us when we love others. So here we are, seven days before Christmas. Do you know that God loves you? He does. He really, really does. And I know some of you are perhaps thinking, well, I've been a little bit bad this week. So God might love me a little bit, but maybe he loves me a little bit less this week than he did last week, because last week I was quite good, actually. And some of you are looking back over this year and going, well, if this is what God's love is, I'd hate to see what God's anger is. But John would say, look in the manger and, and look at the cross and see that God loves you. That's his measure of love for you. Not based on what you've done, not on the things that you should and shouldn't have done this week, this month, this year. Not the events that have happened through the year. 
This is the demonstration of His love for you. I wish I could convince some of you of that. That He loves you more than you love your kids. More than you love ice cream and pizza. More than you love your couch. God loves you sacrificially, selflessly, purposefully, completely. It's Christmas. This is how God showed His love to us. He sent His Son. And my call to you today is not try harder, be better, be a good person, be a little bit more loving. My appeal is this. If you know His love, then He will change you. If you know His love, then He has already changed you. And if you lack in love, perhaps you need to spend a little time considering just how much God loved you. And if you just can't love that person because they are just so unlovable and so broken, then just remember that God loved you even when you were unlovable and broken and a rebel. And he sacrificed, and he gave, and he was selfless, even to those who were undeserving and who rejected his love. So Christmas, then, is a call to love. Not just to love yourself, not just to buy presents for a few people and say, see, I'm buying my love for you. It's a call to love your spouse, as God loved us, sacrificially, completely, it's a call to love your children selflessly. It's a call to love the church. It's a call to love your neighbors, the despised, the outcast, our world. And it's just really the question of what will you do that is sacrificial, selfless, and life-giving this Christmas? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love toward us. That you would call us your beloved. That in that, in that word, there is an, it captures passion and longing and depth. That we are more than just your dear friends, but we are the ones who are loved supremely by you. Thank you, Lord, that your love is selfless and self-giving and abundant and free. That your love is life-giving to our, to our weary souls. And Lord, if this is how you have loved us, then we ought to love others in the same way. And yet I think we must all confess that we don't always seem to match that. Lord, may we reflect on your love. And may we this week enter into and accept that invitation to love one another as you have loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
and I invite you to spread a little love this morning amongst